okay, is sitting at the end of the table with his hand over his mouth trying not to laugh. My partner and I are sitting across the table looking at each other like, what just happened? <laughs> that just happened? So then they come back on. I don't know if they ever realized that we heard everything or not, because we, I mean, we were really silent, right? So we didn't want to, we didn't want to spoil the fun. And they said, well, we'll take your agreement. And we said, oh, great, okay, you sent us the paperwork, we'll sign it. And that was it. And thus was the end of the franchise. The thing is, when, the thing you got to remember, when the law is involved, you need an advocate. you got an advocate. you got somebody on your side, somebody that knows the law. In this case, somebody that understood franchise law and agreements and that sort of thing. Now, I mean, obviously, in our case, a little... Um, a little extra technological blessing didn't hurt. But, um, Jay, you, you need an advocate. And I tell you that because spiritually, we also need an advocate. We need somebody who can walk with us through our struggles, particularly our struggles with sin. I'm not our only struggle, we have lots of struggles. With our temptations, that sort of thing. Somebody that represents us before God the Father, who clearly loves us, God loves us clearly, but he's also the judge and accept the penalty for when we sin against him. Now we're in 1 John, and remember this letter started out with John telling us about how Jesus is real. It's not just a story or anything like that. He's a, he was, he's a real person. In fact, as creator, he's the basis of all that's real. And that he is eternal life itself for people who were once destined for eternal death because of their sin. And he's the message that we proclaim so that others can have a share in Jesus. He's the real, real. And our lives should be Jesus first and everything else later. And then last week we learned that sin is a very insidious reality that wants to take every one of us out. That wants to keep us living in darkness. That wants to prevent us from walking in the light of Christ. But then it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus died, he rose again, he conquered sin and death and the devil. His spirit in us will give us the strength to live according to his word if we ask him. His word gives us the tools to fight sin. And we have a share in one another because of Christ. And together we can have a share in helping one another to walk in the light. I mean, we may be sinners, but if we put our trust in Christ, we're also saints. As John moves on, he's going to continue on this theme of the reality of and the importance of dealing with sin. We're going to be starting chapter 2 of the first letter of John, where he tells us that one reason for writing his letter is that we don't give in to sin. Listen to how he starts in chapter 2. My little children. I mean, don't you like that? God, it's like so loving from my little children. I was thinking Paul would have been writing this letter and he might have said, you little brats. Holding the corner. But um, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now the last chapter, John made the point that we're, we're going to sin. But that when we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just and forgives us of our sin. Now we move to chapter 2. I think... I kind of feel like John wants to head off some thinking that goes something like this. Okay, well, if Jesus is just going to forgive my sin anyway, and I'm going to sin, and Jesus is 
going to forgive. Who cares? What you do? Why should I care? And John points out that he's writing so that we will not seek to sin. Now remember in the last chapter, those last two sermons, we kind of had these little tests. And the tests were like, the first one was, if you're living according to the darkness, if your life looks like the darkness, and not according to the light of Jesus, we should consider whether we're really following Jesus. That was the first test. And the second one was, if we say we have no sin, then we're not living according to the truth, and we're not following. So we have these already established principles, but then he talks about the forgiveness of sin, and he wants to make sure we are absolutely clear that we should still be seeking to avoid sin. An habitual lifestyle of walking in the darkness means that we should really consider, am I really following Jesus? If all we want is sin, then we're failing the test of walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. I really feel before the end of the series we have to be in song. The um, I want to be in the light as oh, you are in the light. I want to shine like a star in heaven. Yeah, you should probably do that song. Yeah. It's a great song. I really dated myself there. Today, are you getting up? I also think. sin anyway, so who cares if I sin or not I'm doing it all. But you also could get what I what I call defeatist about sin, right? Because you also could get like, well, I'm going to sin anyway. Just no hope. I'll never be free from sin, so why even try? To be defeated before you even start. But we shouldn't lose hope in the fight against sin. Because the next thing he says, we always have Jesus to the rescue. Look at the second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, right, I'm hoping that you won't sin, that you'll take sin seriously and not sin. Don't just say, oh, who cares? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, when I was in college ministry, long, long ago, in the 90s, last one we had some guys in our campus ministry who were who were really overly obsessed with their own sin. Maybe you've known somebody like this. I don't mean like concerned with sinning, because we all should be that. I've just spent a couple sermons talking about that. I'm talking like they couldn't make a decision about something sometimes, because what if their motives weren't 100% pure? What if my motives in this are to 100% glorify God in every possible way. Hey guys, hint, they never are. And you're probably in this life not going to get to that point where your motives are always 100% pure in every way, shape, and form on every last thing you do. I mean, if it was, it's probably not going to happen. Okay, probably not. I'm going to tell you straight up. Zach and I have been talking about trading my Taylor T5 for his Rickenbacker 330 in Fireball, just like John Hunter. 
who's being interceded with by the Son on our behalf. He's coming to intercede for us. Now when Jesus pleads our case, when we sin, he's on firm ground because we're told in the next verse he's the one who satisfied the judgment of the judge. He is the propitiation. Chapter 2, verse, first part of verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. I love that word. Can you say that three times fast? Propitiation, propitiation, propitiation. Without spinning? I'm going to have to wipe off my iPad after this one. The word propitiation occurs four times in the New Testament. One time in Romans, one time in Hebrews, two times in 1 John. It means to satisfy the due penalty for our sins. In Romans 3.25, it has to do with Jesus' blood paying for our sins. In Hebrews 2.17, it is connected to the priestly role of Jesus making satisfaction for our sins. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, right? Okay? Translated to Hebrew to Greek. This word, word used for propitiation in the New Testament is used to refer to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And that gives us a perfect picture of what is going on with propitiation. you got to say
God looks down on me. He doesn't see the sins of the Orville where there are many. He sees the blood of the sacrifice, Jesus, that covers over my sin. Jesus himself shed his blood as the payment that satisfies the penalty for sin. What, what's the penalty for sin? Death. But when we sin, Jesus literally pleads his blood for our sin. He died to pay for it, and in the grand eternal court, he is the advocate who points out to the judge that we are his, and he died for us, and the penalty was already paid in his blood to satisfy all the legal requirements of God's law in any way, shape, or form. It's all paid for by Jesus. That's why he's the only way. Only the blood of the perfect, righteous sacrifice is able to pay that penalty once and for all. In the eternal court of heaven, we need an advocate and we need a plea. And Jesus is both our advocate and our plea for our sins. Now, just how much sin can, can Jesus pay for? Well, John is going to tell us this too. What does he mean by the whole world? Second half of verse 2. Let me read the whole verse again for you. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this verse has been the subject of debate ever since the time of the Reformation. Because it is used by those who hold to what is referred to as unlimited atonement to point out that Jesus' sacrifice is enough for all people. Now if you are of the Reformed persuasion or the Calvinistic persuasion, the people who believe that believe in what is called particular or limited atonement which is the idea that Jesus' sacrifice only is for those who believe in him. I am going to argue that neither of those things are in view in this verse. Now we can argue about those in some other sermon if you want some time, that's fine. But I don't think that's what John's talking about. I think he's talking to real people about their real sins, and that Jesus paid for those sins. And I think he brings this up here to tell us that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Whatever sins need forgiven, Jesus is enough to forgive those sins. There is not so much sin that you can commit, there's not so much sin in the world that Jesus can somehow run out of grace. That somehow in the eternal grand court that the blood will run out and Jesus will be like, ah! I really like Stacy, but I'm blood. Sorry, bro. Now the particulars of how that works out we can leave for other verses. But I don't really think that's what John had in mind here. I think what he had in mind is just trying to get you to understand Jesus is enough. He's enough. We've learned to take sin seriously. We've learned that even if we do sin, we should not despair because we have Jesus to the rescue, who is both the one who represents us in the heavenly court and the one who himself paid the sentence for our sin. And so in response... John gives us a little pointer on how to avoid sin. Let's read on. And by this we know that we have come to know him. It's another one of those little test type things, right? That's how we got lots of phrases like this. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, 
uh, to walk in the same way in which you walked. I find this interesting because what this tells me is that avoiding sin, honestly, is really not that complicated. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's not complicated. It's not easy because we have our own sinful desires and a lingering sin nature and the flesh and the devil and all that trying to drag us down. But the actual avoiding of sin seems to boil down to this. Jesus, John tells us, that we should live like he lived. He says to follow his commandments. Well, Jesus himself says basically the same thing in John's Gospel. In John 14, 15, what does he say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he can say that because he's Jesus. I mean, if I say to you, if you love me, you should keep my commandments, you should look at me like, eh, I don't think so. But he's Jesus. That's different. His commandments are perfect. That doesn't sound so bad, right? Until I start to think about it. Which commandments should I follow? Ten commandments? Those are good, I mean, those are good right? Honor your parents. Don't lie. Don't go maliciously killing anyone. Sounds good. I'm a fan of that. How about, how about the 613 commands that are total of the law of Moses? Should we follow those? No. A, because Jesus fulfilled the law. B, because then I couldn't have bacon wrapped shrimp. <laughs> Some of you were at my Christmas Eve party and you had the bacon wrapped shrimp. And so you know. You know, you know. How about the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount's got some great stuff, right? Good stuff. Well, I, I'm going to make it easy on this, I think. Maybe Jesus did. 
Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, there you go. Everything, law, prophets, all the stuff, it all, he just boiled it down to two. Love God first with everything we can muster, then love other people. That's the summation. In fact, I'm going to argue, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that a lot of the New Testament is really just commentary on this idea. It's, it's different things, you know, significant portion of the epistles are just ways to love God and neighbor, or sometimes, Corinth, ways not to love your neighbor. <laughs> stop doing this. <laughs> right? Okay? Paul's got a lot of that. Can you guys stop doing this? Yeah. Well, I mean, take the book of Romans, okay? And if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, here's a wonderful opportunity for you to read through the book of Romans to see if I'm telling you the truth. The book of Romans has 16 chapters. When you read the first 11, there are all sorts of theology about how God has loved us even though we're a rebellious lot. Lays out all sorts of theology about sin and salvation and all that kind of stuff. And then you get to chapter 12 and the rest of Romans, and he's going to tell you how to live that out. How do you live all that out? Right? Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And then on and on he goes about what to do. Since, since Jesus has done this for us, how should we live? Oh, let me give you a few chapters on that. Here's how you love Jesus love other people. And that's the rest of the book of Romans. All those practical steps I gave at the end of the sermon last week are just practical ways for you to stay on track in loving God and loving other people. If our hearts and our minds and the rest are, are all set on loving God and loving other people, avoiding sin is a lot easier. Because I, I just, you know, think it's what I'm about to say, loving to other people, doesn't reflect loving God. Is what I'm about to do going to be loving toward other people? Does it reflect what someone who loves God would do? What does loving God and other people look like in whatever situation I find myself in? Now, as a parent, sometimes that might mean discipline. Sometimes it might mean grace, because you know God gives both in appropriate measure. What about at work? It may mean going out of my way to help a coworker. Or it may mean I have to hold someone accountable. What about when we're driving in a roundabout? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> My point there is to remember that we shouldn't confuse loving God and loving others just with being a doormat or a pushover or being inappropriately nice. Jesus was none of those things. He was, as John puts it in his gospel, full of grace and truth. So we should be. That's what it means to be loving God and loving others. He was full of love and forgiveness. He was direct when necessary, even calling out sin sometimes. But he was never mean about it. Sometimes Christians are just, just mean about stuff. I don't understand that. Don't be mean about he can be righteously angry. You know what? He was loved by children. Okay? Think about that. He was loved by children. 